Hey guys, you're listening to episode 92 of the Finish Line Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. My name is Cody, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Keelan. Today, we're talking to Stephen Kump, founder of CharityVest. Stephen has a gift for uniting the power of technology with his passion for generosity, and CharityVest is a wonderful culmination of both worlds. CharityVest has helped to make donor-advised funds more accessible to givers. Stay tuned to hear why Stephen believes that giving should increase dramatically over the next 20 years. Before we get started, I wanted to ask one big favor from you guys. If you've been listening to the show for some time and want to support what we're doing, one very easy and free way to do that is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Just write whatever you like about the show and you'll help others find us. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know when new episodes come out. And with that, let's get to the interview. Okay, we're here today with Stephen Kump. Thank you so much for taking some time to join us today. Glad to be here, guys. This is fun. So can you start us off today and tell us a little bit about your faith background and your upbringing? Delighted. Don't normally get to talk about the faith aspect of my background on podcasts, talking about my life and charity best these days. So this is particularly fun. I'd summarize my story as, you know, one of garbage collection to treasure following. I'll explain what that means. I grew up in a Southern Baptist home uh, where I come from. Baptist does not have any T's in it. It's Baptist. And uh, I'm incredibly grateful for where I grew up, culture I grew up, my parents. I grew up in a wonderful, loving home. What I came to understand, though, about my life was that it was about achieving. It was about doing the right stuff. And so in fast forwarding to high school, I became a model kid. I did everything correctly. I had high grades. I was a three-sport athlete. I was a student leader. I was all the things. And when I got to college, that came tumbling down. Now, to back up, I came to trust Christ for my salvation as a young kid in that home and believe I understood that I was fundamentally sinful and needed somebody to step in my place and uh, entrusted Jesus for my salvation. And I got to know Jesus better in high school in that same period of hyper achievement. Well, what that did though is my achieving and my following of God weren't clear enough in how they were different. And I came to believe as I was going off to college that ultimately my life was about achieving for God. So this transition between like achieving in life became, hey, I need to achieve for the kingdom. I'm going to win Christianity. I'm going to win souls. We even use language like that from time to time. And so I went off to Georgia Tech in undergrad thinking that I was going to conquer the world for Christ. And I had an atheist roommate. I found out that he was an atheist. I was like, oh, he's going down. This guy is going down. <laughs> or you could say he's going up to heaven uh, after <laughs> this. And he was so gracious and kind to me. He would answer all my questions. And in the midst of that college experience, I went from being top dog in high school, as they say, to... I joined Army ROTC. I was a private in the Army. I was a pledge in my fraternity. I was failing every single class. Literally, I had six classes. I was failing six classes my freshman year at Georgia Tech. And my roommate's questions were hitting hard, as he would ask me. And so my whole identity of who I was as an achiever, as someone who felt effective, even for God, uh, just became crumbling down. And ultimately, that spiraled into a period of deep doubt and a loss of total identity of who I was. And so that turned into rebellion. I hurt a lot of people in that period, close to me and some that I barely knew. But it was there that I feel like the fullness of Christ met me, that he came and pieced together the pieces of my life that was achieving for him and ultimately was a much more beautiful picture of following him and some gracious people were Jesus to me in that time period. And I really experienced for the first time what Paul talks about in Philippians 3. He had all these achievements and that they were garbage before the Lord and the treasure that he had in Christ. And that's how I felt. Like I've been garbage collecting for a long time and that's what my life has been around. And my story turned around in following Jesus. And there were just even a couple things like that God did in that period shortly after to kind of mercifully make this more real. I met my wife in high school. I actually met her in the circumstances of having hurt another woman that period of deep rebellion. That was my wife's roommate. 
that's how she got to know me. And so God's story of getting to know my wife was one of real redemption. And then I felt called into the army and felt like I was a missionary in the army. And even there, the temptation to achieve was there. I initiated zero evangelistic conversations in the army, but led multiple men to Christ there. And God did all the initiating, all of the ministry on my behalf. Literally, people were coming to me and it's like, okay, Lord, um, this is your, your life. This is your ministry. I'm following you and what a treasure it is. And Charity Vest fits right into that whole dynamic. That's been my story since. So I know you obviously have a heart for generosity. Where did that start along the way in some of this story? Yeah, I'm sure, I haven't listened to every episode, but I'm sure some folks have said the phrase generosity begets generosity. And once someone is generous to you, that sort of short circuits a lot of your frameworks, you know, that you have going about in life. And as you already heard, I'm an achiever. That's the way I'm wired. And so I was never really generous growing up and still struggle to be generous, you know, when it is not helpful to uh, my agenda. And so when people are generous to me, or when I would see people be generous to others, it's sort of like short-circuited my friend. Like, why is this person doing this? And even C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, which was really compelling in my period of kind of doubt and recovery, talks about how sacrifice and generosity are two things that don't fit in a naturalistic ethical framework. It shouldn't, be, there's no reason to step in and save someone from a river when you don't have to. And there's no reason to be generous to someone in a naturalistic sense. And, and particularly, there was a man that I met kind of in our early professional years who deeply loved the Lord. And I just saw him do things for people that were out of the blue. And so, most of the time, it was small things, buying gifts, a great gift giver. But occasionally, there were some more significant things. So this is, he found out that a pastor of a local church came from a hard background and didn't have a car. And so this person bought that pastor a car. This person still to this day doesn't know that I know that. It was not done in public. It was done totally in secret. I found out from the pastor and because he knew that I knew this gentleman quite well. And so it, it's that, those sorts of interactions, relationships, transactions that make you go, where is this coming from? Who is this person? And of course, it's all on the backdrop of when you interact with this person, complete joy and delight is the harmony to all the things that they're doing in their life. And it just makes you go, I want a little piece of that. And then later in my professional life, from moving from the army to management consulting to philanthropy advising, I got to work with some of the best people on earth. I feel like when you're working with people who are on a mission to give a significant percentage of their net worth away, it shapes them. They've just like so much of their time and attention is now in the midst of like giving and that really shapes you. And so I got to work with some folks who I felt like were some of the most amazing people, incredibly wired for generosity. And I would just watch the way that they interacted with people and the types of gifts in the ways in which they would give. I had a client, this was in the 2014, 2015 timeline, and the Syrian civil war had just kicked off. And this client's like first reaction was like, we got to do something. And basically said, hey, I want to figure out how to allocate a couple million dollars to figure out how to help this situation. How do we do that? And I, I, I just, in it, and a couple million dollars for this person was not, it wasn't like a rounding error. This was a pretty significant, for most people that's significant, but even for this person, it was a significant amount of money. And to work with people who have that as an inclination, like I want to take a significant percentage of my net worth and like get it out there for the benefit of other people for me to receive. And this was going to be done completely in secret. This person was going to receive no public notoriety for this. That is incredible, like in the literal sense of the word, not, not in, the, in the way that we normally, like, I cannot comprehend that in a sense. And because I think it's, it's such in contrast to my wiring, which is like achieving, how do I win? Um, how do I get ahead? I have just found this to be so life-giving and pull me into be closer with Jesus because I, I think I'm not naturally wired this way in any regard that being in this professional area and operating and being exposed to those kinds of people really rounds out 
a part of my heart that I'm drawn to in the person and work of, of Jesus. I totally agree with you about that. There's something that you can notice about people who are living lives of generosity. It's, it's appealing. It's attractive. You want to be around them. They're, they're, overflowing with joy. And we've gotten the pleasure of spending time with a a ton of people like that over the last few years. And it's really, really cool. And I think being around generous people makes you wonder, what did they discover? What's going on in their life? I I want some of that, just like you experienced. Need a couple scoops, a couple scoops of that, whatever that is. (laughs) That's right. So can you fill in the gap? You were talking about this time during college and you were doing philanthropy advising and management consulting. Where did the idea for Charity Vest come into the picture? Yeah, it was while I was a philanthropy advisor. I was management consultant by training and, and found in philanthropy advising, I could use that kind of analytical skill set to, to help people. And mostly I work for faith-based owners. And so certainly the overlap with my own uh, pursuit of Christ was appealing in that. But a couple of things happened when I became a philanthropy advisor. So number one, I learned about DAFs or donor advised funds for anybody who's who's not heard of DAFs. I learned about donor advised funds for the very first time. I'd never heard of them before entering kind of the philanthropic industry. And I considered myself a little bit of like a personal finance armchair expert. I was like, at the same time, frustrated and delighted that like I'd never heard of them because it was like a brand new personal finance tool. And so my wife and I set up a donor advised fund for the very first time, and we had already made a budget to give. We were budget givers, had a certain percentage of our income that we felt led to give, and we gave that same amount. And so after we set up a donor advised fund, our giving didn't go up, but something else went up dramatically. And that was the amount of time we spent talking about giving went up because we had already allocated all of our income automatically over to our donor advised fund because we had already made the financial decision and all the financial moves. Now all of the talking about our giving was about where does it need to go? Who needs this money? Where do we feel led to give it? And it was no longer a financial conversation, but a conversation entirely about who to bless. And that was way more fun. And so we just talked about it more. We entertained way more conversations about like, needs and and organizations that were having fundraisers. Should we go? Should we, who do we need to talk to about this? We have money set aside. We got, we got to give it away. So it was like a really fun unlock. We used a DAF and it changed the way that we interacted with giving. So that's number one. Number two, I figured out why donor advice funds were struggling at some things. So all of my clients or almost all, it was a lot of them had donor advice funds and they all had like mild to medium issues with them. So either like complaints about fees, about what they wanted to do, but the answer was no, like mistakes that were being made. And on behalf of one particular client, I actually was tasked to do something in partnership with their donor advice fund and was able to go behind the curtain, so to speak, and experience the donor advice fund organization and I'm not gonna lie, I had a lot of curiosity about like, hey, what's going on here? Where are these issues coming from? Let me see if I can run this ground. And what I immediately noticed about this donor advice fund, but as I've gotten to know others as well, this is pretty much the case. These are actually amazing people, amazing, smart people. So clearly that's not the problem. Like the donor advice fund tool itself was highly useful. These people were not about to give up their donor advice fund. That was not an option. So it wasn't a problem with the tool itself. And as I asked, questions, everybody inside this particular organization and then others that I've asked you, like, hey, what's your number one problem or why does this exist? The answer was in absolute chorus, technology. Technology is the reason why fill in the blank. It was always the answer. And as I talked to folks about like, hey, what are we doing about this? Like, is there new technology being built? The answer was always like, wishy-washy. It was like, well, yeah, we're, you know, we are fill in the blank, but it was never convincing. Or you get more realistic takes, which were like, no, we're doing the best we can. And like, this is the way it's going to be. And we're going to make improvements on the margin. And so where it really became like a breakthrough in my heart and mind was I started to imagine, hey, what if this existed 
Like, just go on a journey with me talking to people inside the Denver Vice Funds. If this existed, how would this change how you work? And the answer to that, once I could get people to like step into that imaginative space with me, was we could do all sorts of stuff. Absolutely. It was always a positive, uplifting, like, yeah, that would be a total unlock conversation. So I just became simultaneously convicted that donor advice ones were an important tool for a lot of people that most people don't know about them. And then second, the ones that are out there needed help. They needed technology to step in the space. I didn't see anybody building technology and that sort of observation or insight, if you want to call it that, became a burden. And I just felt like somebody needed to step into the space and ultimately uh, felt led myself to, to do something about it. And I feel like I'm just a a bit of a, a cheerleader of like getting people to the table. I'm not a software engineer myself. I don't know how to build software. We're a software company, but I feel like I've just gone and got them. And now we're at the table and, and we're building some new stuff and ultimately hope to have technology that would be relevant to the entire donor advice fund industry, not just charity vest our own donor advice fund one day. So, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. And I think that you're hitting on an important topic in this area of technology. And I want to get into that more. Before we get there, though, maybe you can just walk us through some of the kind of early years of Charity Vest, what you guys learned along the way as you're starting to put some of this together and how that has framed how you guys operate now. Yeah. From the very beginning, we have felt that donor advised funds were too complicated. The use of them, anyhow, is too complicated. We felt like the economics needed help, like they were too expensive structurally, not because there were people out there trying to make too many profits, like to operate them requires a lot of expense. And we wanted to reduce that. And we felt like there were a lot of opportunities of like, they could theoretically under the IRS code do a lot more cool stuff than they currently do. Like they are legally a lot, like able to do many more cool things than are practical. And so what if we had better systems? We could start reimagining the types of things that donor investments can be relevant for and solve all sorts of other problems. And so that was really to break out what I said earlier of like this burden, like what, what was that focus on? It was really those, those areas. And so we felt like access, we, what we call access or some people buzzword these days in startup land is democratizing tools. Like we felt like we needed to extend the access of donor advisements to many more people. So when we started Charity Vest, a lot of donor advice funds, almost most of them had pretty significant minimums, even open one. Like you can't even open one if you don't put $25,000 in it on day one. Otherwise, we're not going to serve you if you don't. Or they had pretty significant annual fees. Like, hey, we're not going to serve you unless you pay us $250 a year. And so for people who barely understood the concept, really hard sell to be like, hey, we're going to charge you $250 or whatever the number would be for a particular advice fund just to have this account. And so we wanted to make a free donor advice fund that took 90 seconds or less to create and to put it in simple, simple eighth grade English language. And so that was the very first conviction of like, let's knock that out. Like a free donor advice fund, easy to onboard, easy to understand. And so that was really the first whole year of, of Charity Vest. And we've thought about our Charity Vest journey in like three acts. And if you want to take what I just described, you might call that like Act 1A. And Act 1 is really about changing the game with individual donor advised funds. So we offer a donor advised fund to individuals. That was what we were focused on in Act 1. Currently in Charity Vest's history, which I think we can talk more about in a few moments, it's transitioning into partnerships. So how do we take what we built for individuals and turn that into communities of people and their partners and enable technology there. And then act three, which I think we're still a few years away from, would be taking our technology, as I described a minute ago, and enabling other donor advice funds and the whole industry to benefit from our architecture. And hopefully one day that'll that'll be the case. But kind of that act one A was like really about access, free, easy, fast. And then kind of act one B is like enabling more capabilities. So one of the things that we just um, created was a, a social donor advice fund. So people to be able to use donor advice funds easily with their friends if they want to create a workplace fund 
or a family fund if you want to get kids and grandkids involved or for a friend that is tragically passed away you want to give to charities in their honor in a social way so in other words some people have said yeah so it sounds like gofundme and a donor advice fund just had a kid to which i say yeah amazing shouldn't that <laughs> exist cool and it's even more than that so we're trying to expand the possibilities and capabilities of donor advice funds as well past kind of where where they've been and that journey will of course continue but we're right on the the transition point of serving individuals and and moving into partners yeah so on that same train of thought what does partnership look like as you started to identify things that you could reasonably assemble a team and tackle to democratize the donor advice fund and you go okay we've got something here we've got an idea we've got a solution and then you start to see potential for new features and things that are are not yet, right? It's, it's No one's identified them as a problem you're seeing as an opportunity now. How do you then expand your reach? Yeah, we look for opportunities where there are problems. We're an incredibly problem-oriented organization, but we like to look at problems in the abstract. So if somebody says, hey, I really want to do X, what we like to ask is, what are they really trying to do in the abstract when they say they want to do X? This is like the classic example of this is like in Henry Ford's day, people are like, what do you want? And they're like, I want a faster horse carriage. And they don't actually want a faster horse carriage. Their problem is they want faster transportation. That's like an abstract layer over top. And then you address the abstract problem. And so this is something that we do rigorously. And our organization is look for the core problem that people have. And so one of the things that we have noticed is that just to kind of riff off our Henry Ford example is like the world of delivering money to charities is a painful one. It's, it's really hard to get information back and forth back to the donors in the donor advised fund world of like, Hey, where's my grant? And then to the charities of like, who gave this and like in the speed at which all that happens and the reliability which all that happens, the more humans you have in the system, the higher your error rate is. And so we, we looked for those problems of like, hey, speed is a problem. Information reliability and delivery is a, is a big problem here. And so let's redesign a system that's going to do that. And, and how are we going to do that? And so one of the things that we did is we looked for a partner for our check sending that could feed us information back. That was an important criteria of the partner that we selected to generate all of our checks. And so we were able to build a what we call is the the pizza tracker inside of charity vest that will track your grant all the way through its life cycle like it has been sent to the post office it's been mailed it's on its way to oregon or like wherever your destination charity is and it's like it's arrived at the charity it's been deposited by the charity we have all of those status updates coming back into the platform for people to look at themselves to see like right where the grant is and we even have like estimated windows of, of delivery so we've gone amazon on charitable grants when we have to send them paper checks or better yet, we want to send them electronically. And this is the 21st century. We ought to send things electronically, but you can't just like knock on a charity's doors and be like, Hey, I want your financial information so I can send you money. That is not going to work. It's really, really hard to scale and maintain holding people's financial information. But there's this other organization called PayPal that has like an insane percentage of all of the small businesses and organizations and including nonprofits financial information in a secure way. And so we went to them and like, we're able to be one of the first partners for a particular product that solves this problem. We were able to address 300,000 of the 1.4 million charities on day one to deliver grants to them electronically. And now we automatically do it next day. So if we, if you send a grant to one of those 300,000 charities, in Charity Vest, we process that grant on the day that you submitted it. And then the following day, we send that grant electronically to the charity. So yeah, speed, we've, we've now done all we can. We, I don't think we can make it any faster than that, at least right now. Uh, but <laughs> that's one example of like a problem that we articulated, something we built and wanted to like instrument in the product. And it's, and it's all automated. So there's technically a decision that somebody reviews that grant, but like literally everything else about the Grant workflow is, is totally automated and uh, we've oriented toward accuracy and speed. 
Yeah, I know you've also, through some partnerships, been able to give to international organizations also. Maybe you could share a little bit about uh, some of the partnership there and how that process works. Yeah, yeah, we have some great partners. We can't do everything. We don't have the resources to do absolutely everything, or at least not at this stage. And so we lean on partners. PayPal is, is, is one of them, what I just described. But there's another organization for international grant making called TrustBridge Global. Highly recommend them. Founded by great believers, folks who are deep partners and really know what they're talking about. But when you send a grant internationally, it, it triggers some parts of the IRS code and what the IRS will look for in a financial audit of our organization. And so there are additional regulations and reporting responsibilities that we have to take on, something called expenditure responsibility when it goes overseas, and that can be administratively painful. Well, what TrustBridge has done is they've created a network of organizations that allows our money to go to another US 501c3 for us. And so we don't have any additional international regulations that we're responsible for. And then from their US 501c3, they make the hop overseas to a Swiss charity and then have from that Swiss charity, it moves all over the world to their network of organizations. And if they have one very close to your destination organization, you want to send it to, they'll send it to that one and then get it. And usually they can get it like in that same country, which is cool. And then process it within that same country. So it's this cool, like nonprofit logistics network of like moving money that they've set up globally. And it's ultra reliable because their network is like all very known. They're not having to test new partners all the time. So your money can very reliably get just about anywhere in the world. And we think that's worth it for our donors us to partner with them rather than try to build that whole network and, and get that capability in place now. Um, so we've been partnering with them for a number of months now and have sent money all over the place in the world, which has been really fun to see. Stephen, I know you were part of Praxis as well, and I'm personally very interested in learning more about how you got involved, what that experience was like, how your community has evolved since that time. But could you just start all the way back from what is Praxis and what does it look like for an organization like Charity Vest for you as an individual to participate with Praxis? Sure. Praxis has been an incredible organization for, for Charity Vest. We were very fortunate to be a Praxis fellow. So Praxis has a annual program that they run both for nonprofit and for-profit founders to help them think through their venture redemptively. And their, that their thing is redemptive entrepreneurship. You might be asking like, what does that mean? And they define it as following the pattern of creative restoration through sacrifice in our life and work. So creative restoration and sacrifice kind of being the, the key words there. And they really helped us think through the Charity Vest future in our own entrepreneurial journey as Christians through that framework of sacrifice. And it sort of like is a way to oversimplify what would differentiate a Christian entrepreneur from a non-Christian entrepreneur. There are probably many different ways that you could make a cut at that, but like one really good one is that a Christian entrepreneur has a framework for sacrifice. And so that was, as you might imagine, incredibly challenging for me to hear, especially as an entrepreneur, when like in the earlier stage you are, the more chaotic it is and the more sort of like weak you feel and like, how in the world am I going to make this work? To hear someone say, you need to cultivate a rich vision of sacrifice in your venture was simultaneously like annoying, simultaneously beautiful and, and what an invitation into a deeper story of what God is doing and a reminder that this is God's thing and not your thing. It's sort of like the rich young ruler question. Like, are you willing to give it all away in order to be faithful? And I feel like that was a, a deep, deep question in the charity vest journey. And the irony here is, is like my venture is about generosity, right? So back to me being an achiever. And generosity kind of being like this formational pursuit in is counter to that. Praxis is a phenomenal experience of where all that came to a, a very concrete head of like, I got to think through what is our kind of sacrificial vision of this venture. And, and that's really where we crystallize, like the donor advice funds need to be free. Like we cannot not have 
a free donor advice fund. If we are unwilling to have a free donor advice fund, we just need to get more creative. Like if we believe that this tool is a good tool, it, it pursues good, true, beautiful things. Like we need to make it completely free that literally anyone can step in and start giving more purposefully. And so that was really the most concrete first thing in the sacrificial lens that came out. It was like, we need to have a free donor advice fund and we need to have an unabashed posture toward the world as even as a secular venture, that it is more blessed to give than to receive, even if that means like we miss out on commercial opportunities. So those are two quick things that came out of our practice experience. And then just from a sort of more concrete business perspective, the relationships that we've formed from the Praxis community have been instrumental at various seasons along the Charity Vest journey. Yeah, that's, I mean, having a community like that makes a huge impact, especially as you're building the kind of faith framework behind an organization like Charity Vest. Related to some of what you're talking about there, I know you come from a strong Christian background, and I know you don't only work with Christians in the context of Charity Vest. Yep, that's right. And and one of the kind of conversations in the donor advised fund world is which charities do you uh, open access to through a donor advised fund? And different funds will have a different suite of charities that they have access to and other ones that they don't. So coming from a Christian background, knowing that a Charity Vest isn't just working with Christians. How have you navigated the, I guess, the charity screening process or what kind of charities you partner with on that front? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough space for sure. And there are a lot of opinions about it. There are Christian organizations that come under fire from Christians because they have a very specific orientation and interpretation of what's in and what's out. And then there are other organizations that at the other end of the spectrum that some Christians have felt are incompatible. With them, they've denied some Christian, very Christian grants to so the other end of the spectrum. And so, in an important context for anybody listening, not familiar with the donor advice fund space, technically the charity owns the money and is responsible for what organizations are granted out to and not granted out to. So that's why this question comes up a lot. And it, ultimately, it's a question of like, hey, what's the cultural posture of your particular donor advice fund. What are you trying to say is good in the world and and not good in the world? And it's an incredibly painfully complex question. There are organizations that have said, hey, we're not going to support churches because we don't want to do anything religious. And it's like, well, if the church is putting on a soup kitchen, would you deny that? <laughs> you know. And then on the other end, too, it, it it's sort of like, we really want this to be a Christian thing and we don't want to have any money go to anything antithetical to a particular worldview, totally understand that. But there are complexities involved of like there are organizations that do other things that aren't antithetical to whatever worldview that you have. And so, and then there are some that are obviously the organization itself lives in a gray area. It's not black and white. So you just have this spectrum of complexity to deal with. So I just want to frame that up for anybody listening. Like, why is this a question that comes up? And, it, and it's just because it is really complex. No organization does not in space does not like have to wrestle with this. It's, it's a wrestle. So there are a few different things that I, I feel like I can say this on this podcast as a faith driven entrepreneur, I feel like God has called me into pursuing. And one is charity best being a secular organization. This could have been a Christian donor advised fund. And I felt led to not have it be a Christian donor advised fund. And so maybe to use some like theological terms, I feel like we're building in Babylon, not in Jerusalem. So this is a faith-driven venture built, not just for Christians. We love the folks, we love a lot of Christians on the platform, uh, but built also for the non-Christians. And we're preaching to them just as much as we're uh, preaching to the Christians on the platform. Number two, our, our culture really values giving. Like today, it's like one of the last things that we can pretty much all agree on. Like giving is a good thing. Ask somebody on the street, is it good to give to charity? Pretty much everybody's like, yeah, that's good. Do you do it? You don't know what kind of answer you're going to get for that when you ask that question. But like everybody, I think pretty much agrees. Like, yeah, this is a good thing. And so I think giving is a really special opportunity for us as Christians to point people toward God. And we're going to go theological here for a second. But like, I, I think that this 
aspect that God is generous, that it was out of his overflow of love that we were created. It was out of his generous love that we're invited into God's redemptive story that like generosity itself is on the image of God that is stamped on all of us. I believe that. And so I think generosity is one of the things that is an invitation into the, like our transcendent reality. Like get out of the day to day for a moment. This is a portal into like the deeper reality of human life and experience that you were created by someone who loves you and love and giving are a part of his nature. That is who he is. And you're a part of that story. And so I think we have the opportunity. So this is number four is to take an affirmational stance on the culture. Do what Paul did in Acts 17, where he goes to the Areopagus and he looks at all the gods and there's one labeled the unknown God. And he says, that one, like, that's it. Like, I know him, pursue that more. Like, go deeper on the unknown God. Like, you're going to find good things there. And so it's a it's using the cultural framework of what's accepted, not introducing more complexities and contradictions to the cultural framework that was accepted, and to say, go deeper. Like there is more good truth and, and beauty when you pursue this deeper thing. And so I think that's my conviction of why we're a secular organization, why we have a neutral stance on our grant making is like, it's incredibly complex, but I think the bigger thing that I want to be the message of Charity Vest from a faith-driven perspective is to say, I want to invite you, the secular culture, to pursue generosity, something that you were created to do, and it's a gateway to a deeper reality, a person who loves you deeply. And I think getting into the technical details of who's in and who's out really puts that, that story at risk. And practically, we've been invited into so many conversations that we would never be invited to if we took a Christian ethical, classical Christian ethical stance on what we create to and what we don't create to. And so I think that Christian giving institutions should exist. And I think they should take a their own Christian ethical framework on what's in and what's out. So I'm not saying at all that I disagree with other organizations and the stance that they've taken. But for us as a explicitly secular organization, I think puts us in a different category and we want to be invited into the secular spaces and be affirmational in our posture there and say, go deeper and let that be our message. Well, Stephen, shifting gears a little bit, I'm really interested to hear from you. We talked a little bit about features, but what are some of the most creative ways that you've seen people actually use a donor advised fund as a tool? Yeah, fun question. Beyond kind of the conventional cool ones like consolidating all your giving in one place on one tax receipt or uh, giving appreciated assets to avoid capital gains tax, um, kind of the ones that uh, folks will go to that are really awesome. Uh, we, we found some some really neat applications of this. So one of them is sending a gift card of giving. So we have the ability for anybody on Charity Vest. There are a few different donor advised funds that do this, but our platform will allow you to send a gift card to literally anybody on the planet, which I think is unique to our organization. So that is to say they don't need to have a Charity Vest account or ever have heard of Charity Vest at all. You can basically go to your Charity Vest account, say, hey, I want to give a gift card and type in any email address on the planet and say, I want to give them X dollars and I want to invite them into giving. And you can do this to unlimited amount of email addresses. So we had a company in Atlanta, they get wind of this and they said, Hey, we want to give a gift card to every single employee. And whether they have a charity vest account or not, of course, like 99% of them did not. And so they copy and pasted everybody's email address in the company, hit go. And everybody got money at Christmas that they could give away to any charity. And we had like a 90% participation rate on that. Like they got in, they gave and like, the the reviews were all just like in, incredible. Um, people were like, I got to give money. Like I got, you gave me money to give away. And it's a fraud proof mechanism as well. It was like, you can't do anything except give it to a 501c3, which is cool. And we've heard lots of different stories. Like instead of giving wine bottles, it was like thank you gifts to vendors or clients, like 
send them money they can give to any charity. And so we've heard cool stories like that. So that gift card is one. The other is kind of like what's happening in the collective philanthropy space or community giving, the different words that are used for it. But we've seen on Charity Vestas launching community funds back in the summer, some really cool things happen. So we had somebody on the platform decide that they got married a little later in life and were from a privileged background. They decided like they did not need a registry and to get all these gifts of like trinkets and stuff that they didn't need. And so they created a community fund on Charity Vest and invited their entire wedding attendee list to give into their community fund and specified some causes that they were going to give to and said, hey, we're going to give all this money away on our honeymoon and to organizations. You'll be able to see the exact organizations and amounts that we give it to. So like, put your money here for our wedding gift. And their wedding party did, or their wedding like whole group did. They have like thousands of dollars in this account that they got to give away in their name and everybody got to see it. And everybody, of course, individually got their own tax receipts that contributed to that fund. So that's really, really cool. We've had other ones like workplaces start community funds for all of their employees to give together to certain causes. We've had a girl was tragically killed a few months ago and a community rallied around her and promoted like and celebrated her life. Apparently she had a particularly giving countenance about her. It was always like giving stuff away. And so they felt like it was appropriate to create a community fund for her and to celebrate her life by giving to kids charities like all over the country. And so the participation in that community fund was just incredible. And to see them go and support a whole bunch of different kids causes from her life and that happening in a donor advice fund context and people like giving crypto to do it. It's just cool to see that kind of stuff happen. So what's going on in the community space right now with philanthropy? I think we're just, just at the beginning of it. And this is going to become more and more of a central conversation piece in how philanthropy is done going forward. So community giving is like a, a neat future of donor advice funds and their use cases. Building off that a little bit, I know these are some fantastic examples of community giving. Just as kind of a philosophy, how do you think we either as people or as Christians uh, in particular should think about giving individually versus giving in community. I, th- I think there's a role for both of those. And how should people think about how they balance out both of those uh, responsibilities? Yeah. What a great question. I think the first reality to confront is that all giving is relational. There's a giver and there's a receiver. And sometimes there's a beneficiary who might be separate from those two parties that benefits from the resource. It's all relational. It's just a matter of like whether or not it's done relationally well. And so I, I think if you take that logic and say it's all relational, I think you can make a pretty good argument that giving is better as a team sport. So it's okay to not be a team sport. It's like playing soccer. Like when you're dribbling around, it's pretty cool. You can make some shots on goal. It's fun to be out there by yourself sometimes, but like pretty clear, it's way more fun with other people. And so that might sound weird to a lot of people, but I think when you don't think about giving is the transaction, a lot of times when we think about, we think giving, it's like, oh, like writing the check and like mailing it. The process of giving is like way more rich than that. It It's about like meeting needs and like blessing people. Think about it in those terms. It's just so much easier to imagine like, how do we be creative? How do we get the information that we need to understand what's going on? What what would be the best solution to meet their need? How do we coordinate the parties that need to show up to meet their need? When you think about like what what's the giving that's needed, that goes all into whether we give, how do we give, why do we give, when do we give, all those questions, way better in community, way, way better. And so what I find is that the the transactional part of giving, like how do we deliver the dollars is merely the forcing function to have all those conversations. So that is to say, we create a community fund and say, Hey, everybody, let's give together. Now we have an easy way to do that. It's like, okay, cool. Everybody put your money in. How are we going to give it away? Now the fun starts. You go have all those conversations about, all right, so where, where should we do this? 
I mean, it goes all the way back to the example that I described when, we, when I first started using a DAF, when my wife and I created one and we put money in a, in a pot. And it's like, that we need to talk about it. Um, we need to talk about where this giving is going to go. When, when are we going to send it? Who are we going to send it to? Um, and you just have richer conversations, which is way better in community because you play off each other's gifts, talents, background. It becomes a much more richer thing. So it's something we like to say around Charity Vest is that giving is a team sport. And how do we make it easy for folks to collaborate and communicate and coordinate with their giving? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'm just thinking of the book of Acts, the the many examples of basically everybody doing that, throwing everything into a pot. And they're like, okay, let's meet all the needs of this community by giving together. And everybody is just putting in whatever they can. And they're looking for the needs of, of the rest of the group. And I know you. this has become a major theme for Charity Vast. You're talking about the different phases of what you're doing. I'd love to hear where do you see the future of community giving? Because as I'm thinking about this Axe example, and then some of these more recent stories that you've shared, I think there's a big gap in history in the middle where a lot of giving has been individual. And you guys are creating a lot of tools to open the door for community giving again. Where do you see that going in 5, 10, 15 years as community giving expands? Yeah. Just to make a kind of side point, but I think it's an important one to your question, is tools matter in the ultimate outcome. Like the ability to coordinate well and efficiently creates the ability to have conversations. Like if somebody is convinced like this won't be intractable and painful, they're willing to have certain conversations that they maybe they weren't willing to have before. And kind of your point about like, how do we get back to something? I think one of the major reasons why we're not there anymore is like, how do we do that? It's rooted in this, how feels incredibly painful and almost intractable. Like we can't even approach that anymore. And of course, I think we would all also agree and many serious Christians listening, like we can, we should be able to get over that. But my point is, is like, it inspires more conversation when we feel like it's approachable. The second thing is that I think tools can increase our imagination of like the possible when we see certain patterns like, oh, that exists. Wow. And I think that's what we're seeing even with our community funds or in collaborative philanthropy generally, even outside of charity best is like, just the possible is like blowing people's minds right now. And like creativity is like starting to come online. And so I would, I would say, I think that's where we could be going with regard to getting back to more of a acts to model of like, how do we share resources in a way that is more communal in nature? And I think the specific thing that I'll talk about that community funds has opened up at Charity Vest is the ability to consolidate or submit, I might even use that word, the decision of where money should go to someone else. So essentially there, and I'll get technical here for a second on like how our community funds work, but I'll come back up to higher altitude in a second. But like we have a fund manager who is the, usually the person who's created the fund and they have the rights to select the charities of where the money goes and how much. And, and then there are people who are contributors to the fund. And those are people who just put the money in and they get a tax receipt back and they can see the, the fund, but they don't actually have the rights to send that money anywhere unless the fund manager makes them a co-fund manager. And so what we're seeing is that people are trusting other people that they know have more expertise in a particular area. That's like one archetype of community funds that we're having like seeing experts or people who are doing serious amounts of research and becoming experts and sort of other people saying, I want to syndicate my giving to you or at least a portion of it, because I know that you're a better steward of this. Like it is better stewardship for me to entrust this in stewardship to you. And, it's, and I think we're going to start to see that model quite a bit more. And it, in a sense, like you could even argue like this is kind of what the church is supposed to do. We put our money and our resources in a pot and then we trust elders and pastors and deacons and servants of the church to allocate it better. And I think this is just another pathway 
for that to potentially happen in community where we have people submit that authority where this money is going to go to someone else. And I think the invitation or kind of cool part about this is like, watch what happens to those relationships and the trust in that community when we start doing this at scale. I'm excited about that. Yeah, Stephen, I'm just thinking like for someone to say, I, I have some expertise, I have some idea of, of where money should flow. And if other people are on board with that, let's have a conversation around that. It does make it a team sport. Just like you're saying, it's, it's less like everyone go home, have your private conversations with whoever's at your house and don't ever talk about it. Right. This is often how giving can be treated, at least in my experience. So it's really interesting that you have people like, here's what I think. And if that jives with what you think, then let's, let's work together. And uh, I've gotten to do a little bit of that in the past on kind of a, Hey, we're working towards the same thing. We have some resources, let's work together. And that is so much fun. And it takes some of the doubt out of it because you get to, you have a sounding board. It's, it's exactly like what you're saying, but I'm also thinking as a financial advisor, I've gotten the opportunity to share more about donor advised funds to my own clients. And I'm imagining that's a massive opportunity for financial advisors all over the country to be inviting their own clients and their network into these communities, into a more efficient way to give in a lot of cases, especially if they're managing appreciated assets. So where do you see an opportunity to partner with financial advisors and centers of influence who can work together with organizations like Charity Vest to improve giving across the country. It's almost like you're setting me up for a softball question, Cody, <laughs> which is amazing. I love it. Hey, we were just talking about trust in communities and community giving, how that like really matters in the equation. By the way, that is a principle period in giving of like your who you trust with your money. Anything that touches your money is like super super critical to all the decisions that you make. That sounds like obvious to say, but when you think about like growing a donor advice fund or how a financial advisor grows their business, it really is like trust is the super highway on which all that happens, right? And so what we've found with Charity Vest is that anybody who has a significant amount of trust in somebody else's life period, but especially their financial life, plays an important role in catalyzing more giving, more generosity. And so we kind of have arrived at the conclusion that like we can't avoid addressing the financial advisors, an incredibly important part of getting dollars out there. And on this podcast, I'll say to build the kingdom, like we, we need dollars going out. People want to talk about the dollars that are sitting in DAFs need to get going. And I'm like, yes, and amen, like let's get that money out. But I want to talk even more. There's $240 billion sitting in DAFs and like, yes, let's deploy that money. But how about the 120 trillion, I think was the number that I heard the other day, which is like in investment portfolios, managed assets in America, like across all wealth managers broadly defined. And so like, let's get that money like going, right? And so how is that going to happen? If the financial advisor is not a part of that equation, it is not going to happen. They are the trusted advisor that is literally in their name. And so we need to partner with them in order to achieve what they are hoping to achieve and fit into that framework with their client. And so what we're doing at Charity Vest from a technical perspective, and this is moving into, as I was describing, three phases of Charity Vest history. This is moving into, into kind of phase two or act two. What we call it is, is partnering with the other parts of the financial stack, let's call it the financial life of a person, in this case, the financial advisor, and putting Charity Vest in their hands. And what that looks like practically is creating a version of Charity Vest that's white labeled or private labeled, depending on which term you use, for that financial advisor. And so they can say, hey, we're launching our own donor advised fund. It's going to have our same investments that you have on the for-profit side, let's call it. And I'll be able to see everything that's going on and you're giving, and you can see my like face and my contact information is right there on your giving dashboard. And I'm a step away from this. And we even have some content 
baked in that we can look at together on how we can give more efficiently or how we can give more strategically to certain causes that I know that you're passionate about, client. And so we think that those tools, just like we were talking about, matter in like change conversations, in dynamics for the individual or maybe an individual and their spouse. Same is true for a financial advisor and their client. Put a DAF in the equation and there's money that's being managed that ultimately has to legally go to charity now. That's going to change how much they talk about philanthropy. No doubt. Create a, a donor advice fund account for that donor that's sitting there waiting for them. The probability that they have a conversation about, hey, why wouldn't we put some of this money over into the donor advice fund and go ahead and get the tax deduction this year? The probability that that happens a lot, a lot higher if that account exists. And so our goal is to partner with every wealth manager in America put a donor advice fund that's branded to them that has all of their things that are important about their practice baked into the structure of that donor advice fund and enable them to engage with their client. We want to be the philanthropic practice in a box, like for every wealth manager in America and make it structured in a way that's like sleeves off their best. And so it's similar to us saying, hey, we want to create a free donor advice fund and we want everybody to have one that wants one. We want the same principle to be true with wealth managers. There's no structural reason, no reason why anybody except their time and attention being focused elsewhere to not launch a donor advice fund for their clients. I wanted to zoom out for a second. You know, donor advised funds is a big part of generosity, philanthropy, but the generosity space is, is even bigger than that. You have a bird's eye view to a lot of what's going on just from the nature of what you guys do at Charity Vest. Where do you see God working across the generosity space now? Yeah, it's a it's a hard question and an easy question at the same time. It's, it's hard to pick out a particular thing. Like you can be too micro on this question, but also like you can be too macro. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go macro on the question. I'm a millennial and... One of the things I talk about with kind of the founding story of Charity Vest is as I talk to some other friends about it, about kind of donor advised funds and this opportunity, none of them had heard donor advised funds and, and it didn't seem to resonate with them when I showed them the websites of other donor advised funds. And, and granted, those other donor advised funds aren't trying to win millennials, right? That's not their target audience. So they would probably be like, yeah, huh? I already know that. But uh, nobody is creating something that's accessible for millennials and certainly not Gen Z. And I felt like that was an important component, not all of what we're doing, but an important component of it. And so that is rooted. That desire is, is not just because I'm a millennial and people won't use them, but I think the millennial and Gen Z generations are like more prone to ask deeper transcendent questions of like purpose and meaning. That's a more important question for them. Just how kind of the arc of cultural history is unfolded. There's way more emphasis on purpose and meaning being an important question to answer under the heading of like, am I okay? And so I think that presents an opportunity for generosity to be a conversation back to, hey, this is a signpost. We can point them to something that's deeper and more transcendent. So I think that's a tremendous opportunity I see unfolding of like, what's that going to mean for giving? I think we're going to see an explosion of a lot of different flavors and desires and pursuits of generosity. Not all of it's going to be financial. We're seeing a drop in the amount of financial participation in like formal 501c3 giving, but like group me is exploding. And so I think it, it basically is financial giving follows wealth. But I think there's a real probability that once the millennial generation holds the primary wealth in America, the participate, the sort of like giving rate of the amount of dollars that are being deployed to charity could be materially higher. Historically, it's been about 2% of all GDP has gone to giving. I think we have a real shot at taking it to 2.5 in the millennial generation or, or even up to three. I think it could spike at three, probably won't stay there. But that's sort of my bold prediction of relentless optimism on the millennial generation being a millennial. But I think we have a real shot at that. And I want to make sure technology is not holding that back. That's my job in the pursuit of all this. Okay, second big macro trend very related and is more wood behind the air of what I just said is the greatest generation and boomer generation. The wealth transfer is going to be the largest in history that's going on right now. So the next like 20 years, 
I think there's some statistic out there. So don't burn me on this if, if somebody uh, calls me on the carpet for it. But I think I heard a statistic recently that more wealth is going to be transferred in the next 20 years than has ever been transferred in entire human history before, which is like nuts to think about. <laughs> so like we're, we're about to experience the largest wealth transfer in the history of the human race over the next like 20 or 30 years as the boomer sort of estates change hands. So a lot of that is going to go to giving a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it. And so I think there's a really tremendous opportunity that the millennials have, especially because they're going to be the primary beneficiaries of that wealth transfer. And I think I'm optimistic about what that can mean for giving. So the generosity movement, I think it's getting the millennials now. It's like more important than ever. Like I'm a journey of generosity facilitator. I know probably just about every person you've had on your podcast has mentioned generous giving. It's amazing. We need to do a lot more of that. We need to do more jogs. And I think this generation and capturing their heart and their imagination for generosity is now more important than ever. Yeah, Stephen, I couldn't agree more. I've had a similar conversation several times just over the last year that we need to start preparing the people who will be on the other side of that transaction, whether it's millennials, Gen Z, people need to have the tools, they need the training, they need the perspective so that they will be good stewards when this money does change hands. And I'm very impressed with the focus that you've had on building the best tool possible. And I'm excited to see that it is really growing in, in its uses, in the ways that you can use it, and the number of people that are using it. It's a really interesting, the way that God has woven all of these things together, that you have an increased interest in generosity with all this money moving, and then just the stuff that we get to hear about the progress towards the Great Commission in general. It's it's not coincidental at all. So giving obviously has a really, really huge place in furthering the kingdom, but also just reflecting the image of God, like you said. Well, as we wrap up this episode, I just want to leave a little bit of time for our manager's minute, which is how we like to end every episode. And that is just one practical action that our listeners can take to step into their role as stewards and to manage God's wealth wisely. So Stephen, do you have a suggestion for our listeners today? Yeah. Other than creating a donor advice fund, if you haven't already, so <laughs> slide that one in there. So that's free chicken, as we like to say in the South. I'm going to go a different direction. And this is related to generosity, but not directly related. Is like one of the most important things that I've ever done in my life, especially where my money is concerned, is instituting what some people call a board of life directors, of having people in your life that you are submitted to, that you've said, hey, I want you to have authority over my life. It's going to be limited authority, but I want it to be real authority to point me in the direction that I should go, that you're going to pray for me and you're going to review my decisions, give me grades from time to time. Maybe not little grades, but I think you all know what I mean. And help me figure out what God wants in my life and to be a good steward of what he's given me. And so giving is a, is a part of that too. If somebody doesn't know how much you give outside of your immediate nuclear family, if nobody else knows that, I would, I would challenge anybody listening to find a friend and show your whole budget to them. Talk to them completely about your finances and even somebody who's not your financial advisor as well. Awesome. If you're you and your financial advisor talk about that, like amazing. Yes. And amen. But find somebody else who's a trusted friend who's got no skin in the game other than your well-being and your walk with the Lord and submit your finances to them and watch what happens. Talk about countercultural, but it's it's a deep, deep intentionality that I think can create more treasure for Christ in your life. Well, Stephen, last thing, if somebody has 90 seconds to spare and wants to go set up a donor advised fund, where can they find more information about Charity Vest? Yeah. If you go to charityvest.org, you will find all the videos and information that you want. And as you so appropriately said, Cody, you can hit create account and it takes 90 seconds and you have a donor advised fund. So would invite anybody and everybody. They start it free. You don't have to pay us a dime. Just check it out. Try it out. See if you like it. And if you don't, let us know. And and that'd be valuable feedback for our team. So I uh, would invite anybody and everybody to step into using a tool for more purposeful giving. 
Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for your time this evening and just really excited about the work you're doing. Thank you for being an achiever for the kingdom. Thank you for your leadership and your constant pursuit of excellence in all of the different endeavors that you've taken on. We're really excited to see how all of these ingredients come together in God's plan and how Charity Best continues to grow and be a part of that uh, generosity conversation. So just really, really grateful for you. And yeah, once again, thank you for sharing with us today. Gentlemen, so honored by the time. And I'm so excited and optimistic about what God is doing through the generosity movement. And just so appreciate your voice in creating this channel for more discussion kind of of like what people are doing to further the movement. And uh, I'm excited to see what God does through y'all and through the people that listen to this. Bless y'all. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 92. Before we finish up, I have a quick question for you. Have you ever stopped to answer the question, how much is enough? A financial finish line is designed to help you do just that. Our 90-day finish line pledge breaks down the process into three easy steps. Step one, define how much is enough for your family to spend in a single month and use that as your monthly spending budget for 90 days. Step two, as God provides money to manage, set aside any margin outside of your finish line into a separate bank account. Step three, after 90 days, explore the million ways you can use the margin you've set aside to create joy, purpose, and impact in God's kingdom. Want to learn more? Check out our website at finishlinepledge.com. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.